Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I'm the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, the air is different out here now. It's We've reached spring training. You can, you can sense all of the players have converged upon Phoenix, Arizona, and it's it's just a different vibe out here. It's it's spring training. It's great. How are you doing? Lucky you. <laughs> you live in a place where there's actually baseball games being played. I live in cold New Jersey where that's still not happening yet. But um, And I'm still a little bit in disbelief. Like, is winter really over yet? Because it's been a long winter for me. And, and it's, like, I, it's like part of me is like, really? They're playing baseball? I, I, like, I can't quite believe it yet in a good way. Right. It's it's crazy. I feel like this February just kind of flew by. And I know February usually kind of flows by, flies by. It's it's the shortest month of the year. But I don't know. This one felt different. And, and suddenly baseball is happening. Part of that's probably the earlier start to spring with the exhibition games for the Padres and Dodgers um, in, in Korea. So their timeline was kicked up a few extra days. But yeah, we're we're really getting there. We have about a month of spring training and then it's the regular season. Yeah, and I think it's funny that um, we're already seeing, oh, Twitter's full of like, oh, how great this guy is. Look at that line drive he hit. And look at that pitcher strike. Now, like, like, it's just early. They're just practicing. Don't get too carried away with any results just yet. But I also think, you know, there's little nagging injuries here and there already. It's like, oh, that season has started. Guys with hamstring pulls and stuff. Ugh. So that's not good. Yeah, the amount of people I saw re- reacting to the Kodai Senga injury news with Scott Boris, go get him! Like mm. th- that, that seems a little bit aggressive to me. But so yeah, I mean this, but this happens every year, right? We're mm-hmm. starved for baseball, and then the littlest thing gets blown up because it's the only news we have. Yeah, I mean, aside from talking about pants and such, and I, yeah, I think we'll no. we'll abstain from that on this podcast. <laughs> We're family friendly. Um, <laughs> But as far as transitions go, if we're talking about, you know, everybody kind of jumping all over this news and, and saying, oh, Scott Boris, get in there. Well, there's a reason for that. It's because the, the, as of you know, as of yesterday, the Boris 4, as people were calling them, were still sitting unsigned. We've talked about it the last few podcasts about, come on, something's got to budge here. And finally, just in time for our, our recording session here, late in the night last night, we got resolution on one of those four guys with... Cody Bellinger heading back to the Cubs reportedly on a three-year, $80 million deal. It has opt-outs after each season, so it's it's very reminiscent to the first Carlos Correa deal with the Twins, where his market just never really materialized, and so late, you know, I think that one also might have been during spring training, but late in the offseason, Boris found him kind of a creative bet-on-yourself kind of a fit where, you know, if... If he bounces back to being the same guy that he was, then he gets to opt out and hopefully hit a more competitive free agent market where he can get that long-term deal that that he uh, thinks he's worth. And if he regresses a lot, a, a little bit from that strong 2023 season and his underlying numbers are maybe more representative of who he is than those surface numbers, then at the very least, he has $80 million of financial security and a couple other chances to reestablish his value in years two and three of that deal. So very similar contracts between Bellinger and Correa, and it really just makes a lot of sense. You know, the Cubs have a short-term need. They are making a kind of interesting push here, given the type of talent they have at the big league level now and the type of talent they have coming through the farm. It's It's been kind of quiet, but... 
they've really shot up a lot of publications prospect rankings over the last season season and a half they they've acquired a lot of young interesting players through the draft or through international or through trading and a lot of them are starting to make their way up into the system now where you're starting to look at these as like actual guys not just you know a low miners lottery ticket and suddenly they have this next wave of talent that might be hitting in the next couple years and so to kind of bridge the gap there you have a say a suzuki you have an imanaga and now you have a cody bellinger and they've i think put together a team that's got as good a chance as any other team at winning that nl central and i think bellinger is kind of the icing on the cake there i, I think they he's the the chip that kind of puts them as the favorites in the division to me so i think it makes a lot of sense to them a lower risk deal since it's only three years and given the state of the market makes a lot of sense for bellinger but it's certainly going to lead to some questions over whether boris kind of overplayed his market and might have turned down some larger offers from earlier in the offseason totally yeah so first i'd like to start with jeff passing he broke the news at what 2 a.m on a Saturday night slash Sunday morning. So what is he doing up at that hour, first of all? <laughs> For those of you who are in these coasts like me, we're all hopefully sleeping and woke up to this. Um, does, I guess he just never sleeps, or at least, you know, he will wake up for something like this. Anyway, so I think the the reaction so far, at least if you gauge by baseball Twitter, is it's both a W and an L um, for Boris. And it's a, it's an L in a sense that he did not get 200 million plus, which is of course what he was going for. And some of the predictions early in the off season were like, yeah, he's going to get 12 years to whatever, 260s. I think MLBTR had 12 years, 264. Um, so only getting three is like massively lower than, than um, we thought. But from an AAV perspective, it averages out to 26.7. Um, so in a way, it's slightly higher. It's higher than what we had in our model. It's higher what than Fangraphs had. It's higher than what MLBTR had. If you sort of look at it on pure AAV level, obviously, if you broke that down into like if it was a shorter term contract, would they have changed the AAV? No, it would have gone up. So anyway, um, so it's a win and a loss in a sense from Boris. And I'm glad something finally, the dam finally broke, and it sounds like it broke on the Boris side with some concessions, which is okay. We'll settle for a lesser guarantee as long as we get a slightly higher AAV fine i hope the other ones do that too um so that's it's all good news i'm finally i'm glad for for bellinger he's getting i think what is a very reasonable deal now another thing that's that's being pointed out on baseball twitter is everyone knows there's a risk involved right you what because you don't know really what you're getting you're getting you're getting good bellinger or bad bellinger you're getting the guy who was you know the previous mvp the guy who had a comeback year in 2023 or the guy who was terrible in the years in between and maybe those were injury related maybe those weren't it's still unclear and also his exit velocity went down people think it's not sustainable so all of that means that there's risk involved which means you're not going to get a huge contract that's what we thought anyway and um so i think it's i think it's reasonable um i think for both sides and it's good to finally see everybody sort of putting their heads together and getting a reasonable deal um the other sort of interesting thing as passing noted that uh, the way the contract breaks down is it's thirty million this year with an opt out, thirty million next year with an opt out, and then twenty million. So in a, in in a way, it's kind of a win win that way for Bellinger because if he is having an MVP year, he can opt, he can get can paid thirty million, and then opt out and get hit the market again next year on a better uh, platform year. Same thing in tw uh, the next year if twenty twenty five is just as good. 
he can opt out and he very well might, might if he plays well because he's only making scheduled to make 20 million in 2026 so they've kind of structured it in a very interesting way from the cubs point of view they're on the hook for not necessarily 26.7 over three years it could be 30 million 30 million. it could be 60 million over two years which is a slightly higher AAV if he opts out after 2025 so there's a number of different ways this thing could play out um but the bottom line is it's less risk for the cubs they get a guy they wanted. Um, it sounds like they can afford it, no matter how way how it turns out. And I think it's good for the game. It's good for Bellinger. It's good f- to see somebody, you know, finally, you know, settled for something of the Boris Four. So, all in all, I think it's good news. Yeah, I completely agree. I think at this price point, it's a good balance of risk and reward for the Cubs, where, you know. You look at Bellinger's inconsistent last handful of years, and there's no, like, you you look at his floor, basically, in 2021. He was a win-below replacement. He hit 165. He hit 10 homers all year, 47 WRC+. No matter how much money you give the guy, if he repeats that, if that's what he turns back into, then the deal's a flop. Like, it doesn't matter how much money you gave him. It could be a $10 million a year deal, and it's a flop if he goes back to a win-below replacement. So, like, in my mind, yes, that risk exists, but it's almost, like, hard to really account for that risk because it, it that's it's just such an extreme that, like, it's it's really hard to account for and still come to a reasonable number to hand the guy. So if you kind of look at, like, the next worst-case scenario, which is his 2022 performance, where... He was a below average hitter, but provided some value on the bases and on defense. And so, you know, it's not an attractive batting line, but he's got a little bit of thump, a little bit of speed, and he ends the day as a 1.8 F4 player. Like, if you consider that as more of his floor, or maybe his, like, let's call it like a like a 10th, 15th, 25th percentile, something like that floor, as opposed to 2021, which is like his first percentile, like absolute worst possible season and you consider that his floor, then, you know, paying $80 million over $3, or excuse me, $80 million over three years for a two-win player isn't good. That's that's going to be an underwater contract if that's the way it plays out, but it's also not going to sink your team. It's not going to be the one thing keeping your team from the playoffs, right? Or from spending money on someone else. Like, you can live with that the Cubs did live with that they had Jason Hayward who was kind of doing that sort of thing for a few years there on his big deal so I think if you consider that as kind of your realistic worst case scenario and, and that's the the level of risk involved then I think that makes it look a lot more favorable from the Cubs perspective however the reward is a little bit limited as well because if you're buying into him and you believe that he is back and he is closer to that four win guy that he was last year then you're only getting one year out of him. He's absolutely testing the market again next year. And, you know, maybe that even works out fine for the Cubs. Maybe if he puts together a four-win season with some stronger peripherals, maybe his defense ticks up a little bit, his peripherals tick up a little bit, even if his, like, actual surface-level production ticks down, things kind of converge together and you feel comfortable in him as, like, a a three-and-a-half to four-win player. That's good info for everyone involved that's good data that maybe makes the cubs comfortable saying all right we can commit to you longer term now like we can hand you the deal you were looking for off last off season 
maybe a little bit less because now you're a year older, but we can hand you that type of deal because now we have two years to go off of instead of just the one. So it's, it really seems favorable for the Cubs, no matter how you slice it, when really their biggest risk might be, okay, we paid $80 million over the next three years for like six total wins or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and what I've been thinking about a lot, especially with this Boris Four sort of thing, is owners and and GMs are really holding the line more and more on, you know, they don't want underwater contracts. Everybody knows that they can really be painful for a franchise to get stuck with this thing, this albatross, even Strasburg, this, you know, this, this you know, Giancarlo Stanton. There's a number of them if you go to our um, our site. You can see, like, oh, my God, they're on the books for this long and that long and that long and that long. And, like, nobody wants to get stuck with that, right? So they're not going to overpay for a guy with question marks. Bellinger could turn back into the MVP guy he was, but he may not. So they don't want to overpay for that risk. Um, so I think more and more what we're seeing is there's just not an appetite for those big, risky contracts on guys with, you know, question marks and in some cases flaws. So the other three that are still in the market also have question marks. I mean, other three of the Boris four, I mean. So I think we're going to see some sort of compromise. They've got to settle at some point. Snell has question marks. Montgomery has question marks. Chapman has, you know, there's got to be some. They're not getting top dollar. They shouldn't be holding out for top dollar. They should get what they get. Um, the other thing that came to mind when this was announced is what happened to, what's going to happen with Pete Crow Armstrong? Because he's viewed as the center fielder of the future. Um, had his cup of coffee last year, didn't quite go as well, but you know had a really good AAA before that. And so, are, is he going to be back in AAA and just waiting his turn? If let's say Bellinger lasts one year and and then he takes over center field, or is Bellinger going to first? If 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 Pete Armstrong has a really good you know season in AAA, and then what happens with Michael Bush? There's a domino effect you can start to count through, especially if you're a Cubs fan. I'm sure they're doing that. Say, okay, well, maybe having another bat is great. It doesn't matter where you put them. We'll work it out. But there's going to be a domino effect somewhere along the line here. Somebody's going to get affected, I think. Um, but the other side of that is, to your point, if you've only got Bellinger guaranteed for three years at most and possibly even as little as one year, then that will work itself out as well. Just give Pete Crow Armstrong the center field job next year and you're good. So I think there's a number of different ways this starts to um, uh play out um i saw you know somebody tweeted like oh now they're gonna make a trade because now they've got too many guys in the lineup that you know like maybe they trade pico armstrong for pitching i don't know i don't think i would go that far yet because i don't think that you know is like a burning issue i think they they like the depth but i do think there's some domino effects here yeah i think there's maybe room for a smaller trade you know they have patrick wisdom around still he's projected for a bench role Matt Mervis had some hype last spring and didn't really pan out, and now he's projected to start the year in AAA. Um, prior to this, it was going to be some sort of a timeshare in center field between Pete Crow Armstrong and Mike Talkman. So maybe Talkman's kind of the odd man out, but he also fits pretty comfortably as a fourth outfield type, so maybe they want to hang on to him. So there's, I think there's maybe room for like a, a move on the edges there, but I think it's good depth to have, too, mm -hmm. where you know Bush isn't a complete product necessarily. You know, we're not necessarily 100% confident saying Michael Bush is going to be their long-term, well, not not only their long-term solution at, at first base, but their 2024 solution at first base, right? He's completely unproven at the big league level. So, 
he has options. If he doesn't work out, he can either kick to the bench or kick down to AAA. And Christopher Morel can kind of play all over the field, and, and guys will get days off. And, and you look at Nick Madrigal penciled in at third base right now, and it's like, is that really going to stick? So maybe yeah. you see something where Morel shifts over and plays some third base, and Bush goes to DH, and Bellinger plays first. And they, they have some permutations here. I really like the length they have in their lineup now. I think it's it they've they've done a good job this offseason. I, I think we mentioned them maybe in November, December as like, hey, what are the Cubs doing? They kinda haven't done much here. Right. Uh but if you look at their roster today, I think they've done a really good job. Like this isn't just like a solid NL Central team. I think this is a solid team. Yeah, no, I mean it, it definitely lengthens the lineup. If you know Corners once and a half. Bellinger, Suzuki, Morrell, Bush, Gomes, Magical, Magical batting ninth now. So it, not that he wasn't before, but I think you know you've got some. Yeah, it pushes Wisdom and Talkman to the bench. Um, so you, yeah, it feels strong. It feels like they're set there. Um, not totally sure they're set on the rotation side. They got Steele, Tyone, and Managa, Hendricks, and Wicks. Wicks is obviously. Young, um, unproven yet. Hendricks, we'll see. There's some question marks there. Imanaga, totally unknown, never pitched an MLB. We'll see. It's not the worst rotation on paper I have ever seen, but I think there's some question marks there as well. So you can see maybe adding a depth arm there. Or there are a couple starting pitchers still on the market. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Pivoting to those three guys that are remaining, I think I could see Snell taking a similar deal to Bellinger here. He's kind of a sim- similar scenario where he had just this superlative 2023 season and nobody quite buys it. So, but but he has like an established enough track record that he can rather than taking the one year prove it deal, he can get this kind of multi-year opt-outs built into it, choose your own adventure type deal where there's some financial security afforded to him because of his just lengthier track record. Um, so I, I think he's a good candidate for that one. I I would maybe see Chapman on a sim- similar deal or maybe just a straight one-year deal or one year with a player option or whatever um, because I think he has more to prove in 2024. He's not coming off of as strong of a baseline in 2023. And I really just think Jordan Montgomery should just get a normal deal. Like, yeah, I think you kind of know what Jordan Montgomery is. I don't think anybody's looking at his 2024 three season and saying oh is he an ace now maybe like no i think i think everyone kind of knows what he is that he's got this like number two ish upside and this like number four ish floor and he's going to be somewhere in that range and we don't need to be throwing 200 million dollars at that kind of pitcher but he's going to be a solid reliable arm for anyone who shows flashes of like being the veteran that kind of leads a rotation and has some days where he just can't put the ball past somebody and maybe he gives up a couple home runs and so he's one where it's like okay what are we waiting for here are we waiting for the red Sox to finally you know budge and and give him what he wants and make the move and get you know kenley jance's money off their roster so that they feel comfortable signing him like is that what we're waiting for with with montgomery and at the end of the day he's just going to get the exact like <laughs> length and deal that we kind of expected him to He's really the the standout of of the three guys that are remaining to me. Of like, just just sign the guy. You know yeah. what you're getting. Yeah, you know what you're getting exactly. So you know, in that case, it's on Boros, I think, to to drop his price to to the reasonable level that everyone thinks it should be at. Like, you shouldn't be holding out for two hundred million for Jordan Montgomery. Give him you know something reasonable, and we're good. Yeah, agreed. 
And I think my last note here on Bellinger, as far as that price point goes, um, you mentioned it kind of kind of briefly early on, but he ended up getting a good bit more than the model expected him to get. Um, over three years, we had him projected at 65.4 million, and he ends up getting 80. Um, even if you shrink that down to one year to kind of look at the like year-to-year nature of it, um, on one year, we had him at 24.3. Uh, and he gets 30 million in this first year. And then there's obviously, you can also talk about, it's an $80 million contract, but there's some significant leverage on the player side that maybe ups the like perceived value of that deal for the player. So you could even argue that there's more of a gap there. I think there's a few different ways to explain that. Um, One being, he goes back to the Cubs, right? And this is a team that just saw him perform at this high level and even if the underlying numbers didn't necessarily support it, they were the ones that just saw it happen on the field. And so I think there's some, you know, I don't want to say value to that, but I think there's maybe, it's kind of similar to me to um, studies have been done, I believe at like baseball prospectus, that the World Series winning team is more likely to like bring the band back together. And it's, and they might overpay to do it, and it might be a case of, you know, the World Series Red Sox bring back Steve Pierce on a multi-year deal and whoops, he's bad now. That was just kind of a flash in the pan that led us to the World Series. Oh, well. Um, but it, it's just a, a noted tendency that, hey, if you got good vibes, keep the good vibes going. And I wonder if there's a little bit of that at play here with the Cubs yeah. bringing Bellinger back. So that might yeah. be part of it. Another part of it, and we've mentioned this a couple times, is obviously the big MVP year for Bellinger. That's way back in... That's way back in 2019, so that's pretty far past the range of, you know, the data that we're actually entering into the model. And and part of the data we're entering into the model still does account for that. You know, other projection systems do account for that. But that is pretty far back there when you're looking at just just how many years back that is. You, you saw what he did last year, and you start to kind of think, like, does he have maybe not quite full 2019 in the tank, but does he have something close to that in the tank? And like, that is a consideration that I think is valid, even though it's been this far in the past. I think when you look at Cody Bellinger, you have to consider that this is the guy that he once was. And if you can even get him back to half of that, it's a steal. So I think that could be contributing here as well, where that isn't necessarily factored as strongly in the model, because, you know, in most in 99% of cases, we shouldn't care too much about how well a guy performed five years ago. In 99% of cases, teams aren't going to look that far into the past or, or weigh it that hard, if weigh it that strongly if they are looking that far into the past. But this is kind of a unique case here. And so yeah, I think that gets I, stronger I consideration. Yeah, totally. I, I don't know any projection system that goes further back than three years, including ours. So you're going back at this point, yeah, five years to his MVP season. So, um, yeah, that's a little out of scope. But it's weird because he's also still kind of young and in his prime. So you could logically as a human being think okay well he's still got a chance to be that guy again so even though the numbers and the models don't quite acknowledge that there's still a little bit of that possibility i get it um and the hometown point is 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 also well taken they saw good bellinger so that's what they know (laughs) so they'll yeah but at the same time you know like i said it's it's you know, so we were taking all that into account in our model, right? Um, which is, by the way, in the aggregate. So it's not, it's not team specific. Um, and realizing that there was risk in there, so that's why we're a little bit on the low side. Uh, but others were either. It's weird because 
you know, if you look at MLBTR and their 12-year uh, projection, that's obviously way high in terms of length and risk that you're taking on. Um, but it's not high in terms of AAV. Same with Fangraphs crowdsourcing. So, you know, you could basically say, okay, it's all a wash. We're, so we're all sort of in the general ballpark. Some are high, some are low, but, you know, it's it's somewhere in the middle. It's both a win and a loss. So that's where I'm kind of at right now. Yeah, yeah. And I think once you... I think it's safe to say that once you get to late February and the guys are unsigned, you can kind of throw the original projections out the window. Not, not not necessarily the original projections out the window, but those original free agent contract predictions, like those were made for a different market. Those were made at everybody's a free agent. It's October 30th or whatever. Yeah. And these teams have this many needs and there should be this many teams that are contending for him. And we don't know anything about TV deals and all that stuff. Right. And, and so it's just a completely different world in which that projection was made. The, the 12 years, 280 million. And I think if you ask those same folks a couple weeks ago, they would have severely backed down from that one. Yeah, I get it. Totally. And, you know, there's an arc to off seasons as well. And this is, I know, um, I've seen some posts about this, but um, if you're making one sort of prediction for the whole off season, you kind of have to split it down the middle and assume some things. Uh, but the arc is definitely like we saw some overpays with Otani and um, you know Yamamoto, but but then you've got like the middle ground where things were mostly fair, and now we're getting to the point where like okay, guys are settling because spring training has already started, so now we're sort of at the low end. Boris is oddly never really bought into that. But even he, I think, is starting to realize he's got to have to have his guys settle. Yeah, agreed. Okay, I think that's that's good for now on Bellinger. We can always circle back to it. Um, but let's let's move on to the Red Sox. We mentioned them a couple times there in that conversation. Um, they made an interesting trade. They traded John Schreiber, a right-handed relief pitcher. We had him at nine point seven million in surplus to the Kansas City Royals in exchange for right-handed pitching prospect David Sandlin, who we had at 2.0 million. Um, so pretty significant gap there. This one does go through the model and is accepted as a major overpay by Boston. Looking at the numbers there, 9.7 versus 2, uh, John and I, we, we talked about this. We both kind of agree that that's a bit too extreme <laughs> to be actually saying, hey, it's a win for the model. It's accepted. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to take a look at the parameters there and, and make some tweaks. We can't it's kind of a, a delicate science to it because you don't want to be saying, oh, wow, a one million player for a two million dollar player. That's double the value. That one's got to be rejected. Like, that's not how it works. It, it scales um, because the error bars are, are somewhat substantial and, and they. What am I trying to say here? <laughs> the, the error bars scale as as the value scales. And so right. when you say a player is worth $9.7 in surplus, you're kind of expecting him to be somewhere in this like nine, in this like seven to 12 range, I guess you could say. Like somewhere in that range is, it's all an estimate. It, it's all built off of estimates. So there's some level of error that's introduced to it. Um, and that applies to the lower levels as well. And it's not necessarily just a percentage basis. You know, when we say a player is worth $2 million, we're not saying, you know, we're 90% confident he's worth between 1.6 and 2.4 necessarily. Yeah. Like there's there's some fluctuation there. And even if a guy is truly worth $2 million, another team might just prefer a different player who's worth $1 million. Or they're they're willing to take the loss in the trade because they like that player and because a $1 million in value doesn't mean much to them. Yeah, so, yeah. 
they're not going by that because at that point right. it's, it's it's meaningless in a way a million in surplus value gets eaten up in a week you know during the course of the season so they're taking a bigger picture viewpoint of it so right they're not going to sweat the details when the numbers get that low and so that's what we're trying to say when the numbers get that low on sort of single digits absolute basis there's more wiggle room uh, but not that much wiggle room is what we're also trying to say um so when the numbers get higher it's better to do it on a percentage basis because you've got you know um because it makes more sense you know you're obviously going to if it, you know, add a zero to that you're not going to you know trade a 97 million dollar guy for a 20 million dollar guy right that's way out of whack uh, but as the numbers get smaller and smaller and smaller, the absolute number takes on more meaning. So it's a sliding scale. Right, exactly. Um, looking at the players involved here, though, I, I think you could make a solid argument that the model was a bit high on Triber and a bit low on Sandlin. Starting with Sandlin, you know, he's an interesting-ish pitching prospect. He has some people who like him and were tweeting some good things about him after this trade. Um, but also based off of the data that we have available from the prospect sources that we rely on, as well as just looking at his performance from the last couple years, you know, there's, there's things to like, and, and there's also some concerns, some relief risk. So it's at the end of the day, we have him at two. Is that maybe a little bit low? It, it could be, but I, I don't think it's too far off necessarily. I, I think you'd have to really like him to bump him up too much more than that. Um, Schreiber, on the other hand, is an interesting case, as relievers tend to be, where he was really, really good in 2022, like super valuable, almost a two-win arm for a reliever, which is like pretty hard to do. That probably puts him in the top like 10% of, of relievers from that season. And so when you look at a guy like that with multiple years of cheap team control remaining, it's like, well, no duh, this guy's got to have a lot of value. And then he follows it up with a 2023 season where he's hurt a little bit and he's walking too many guys and giving up too many homers and loses a tick on his fastball and suddenly he's closer to replacement level. And so it's a question of how much for relievers, which are notoriously volatile, how much do we weigh that dominant 2022 versus the replacement level 2023? And it really seems like it it varies case by case depending on who the guy is and a lot of his specifics that might not necessarily be built into the model, things like fastball shape or or velocity or, or things like that. And it it still just remains kind of a case where sometimes with relievers, with relievers you just got to shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, I, I guess not. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I guess he was lower than that. Oh, well, get yeah, him next I time. Mean... Yeah, it boils down to you got to do the best you can with a high variance population, right? They're going to be up, they're going to be down. You know, you've got free agent signings also uh, reflect this. Ryan Brazier was DFA'd, couldn't get a job a year ago, and now he's got a two million, a two year, eleven million dollar deal from the Dodgers because he he found himself again. They up, they're up, they're down, they're up, they're down, and so you have to kind of weigh all of that, and you have to. At the end of the day, you have to kind of it's probability based, right? What is the probability that this person is going to you know, be good, be not good. You know, some you have to weigh all the things. Schreiber was really good in 2022, and then he was not good in 2023, but he was also injured. So if he's healthy, is he good again in 2022? That's what the Royals are basing on. Um, so, um, and he's got three years of control, and he's cheap. So you might, the Royals might just be getting really good bargain here. That's why he's got surplus value. On the other hand, Sandlin came from, you know, a team with a notoriously bad farm. The Royals have one of the worst farms by consensus. 
and he was like the 17th best project prospect on a bad farm so like there's not a whole lot of value there he was a you know late round draft pick yeah maybe there's something there they can work with and so there's another element of that is you know craig breslow on the red sox side is you know obviously really good he used to be a relief pitcher and he's really good at figuring out pitchers and so maybe he's got a plan it's like ah, i see something to work with and that you know we can't really take that into account because that's case by case as well the rays do that all the time too like they see somebody who has a, a good flight or whatever and they're going to maximize that you know so we're just modeling in the aggregate and these teams will kind of dig into something that they can fix and think okay that's a big deal so chalk it up to variance that's where i'm at agreed um prior to this deal there was more buzz about the red sox considering moving kenley jansen which seemed like it made a lot of sense you know he was just kind of okay for them last year He's making, I believe, $16 million this year. They had financial constraints. They're still interested in Jordan Montgomery and potentially making a push there, but I think they need to free up some cash to make it happen. So he made a lot of sense. Instead, they trade Schreiber. And you look at what's left of their bullpen, and you might now think, okay, now they kind of can't trade Jansen, right? They're, they're now a little bit thinner in those late innings, and maybe they need to hang on to him for there. But I think there's an argument that they still could do it. I think they have enough flexibility with their kind of back-end rotation arms where all of them have relief experience, and it's not the end of the day if you have them all in the bullpen. So looking at roster resource, their current projected rotation, Giolito, Nick Pavetta, Brian Bayo, those guys are guaranteed spots. Cutter Crawford probably also getting a spot, and then you have three guys, Tanner Houck, Garrett Whitlock, and Josh Winchowski kind of in, in the mix for that fifth starter spot. And all three of those guys, like I mentioned, they have substantial relief experience. They've been successful in relief roles in the past. So I don't think it's that big of a hit if you add a Jordan Montgomery to that rotation, bump Tanner Houck to join Winchowski and Whitlock in the bullpen, and move Kenley Jansen, subtract him from that bullpen mix. It's still a little bit of a thin bullpen. Right now on roster resource, We have or they have Justin Slayton, who was a Rule 5 pick. Um, penciled in to a relief spot, as well as Brian Mehta, who's a former top prospect of theirs. His stock has fallen. He's out of options, and he actually just hurt his hamstring, so he's probably not going to be available for opening day. So those are two pretty big question, mark, question marks at the back end of that bullpen. But I think you look at kind of the relief core there, and it's it's pretty solid. Um, so I think there's still room for them to do so. I don't think moving Schreiber takes them out of that necessarily. And if they really like Sandlin for some reason, and maybe they really see kind of the writing on the wall with Schreiber and they think he's closer to 2023 than 2022, then yeah, I think it's a defensible move for them. Yeah, our friend Robbie Hyde did an article for us the other day on what moves the Red Sox should make. Uh, so check that out. Um, basically playing around with those various combinations of things, signing Montgomery, trading Jansen, noting the other relievers who we haven't talked about that they picked up this offseason, Richard Fitz, Greg Weissert. Isaiah Campbell, um, you know, obviously they're just signing Liam Hendricks, but he's not going to be ready for a while. Um, but they have made some moves with some kind of younger developmental arms that could pop. So they're maybe sort of throwing some spaghetti on the wall here, hoping that that sort of, you know, can help the um, the uh, bullpen long term. Um, but there's also kind of an overarching sort of sensibility that the Red Sox seem to not be spending money. Like they're not going to sign Montgomery and go over their budget. They're going to have to trade Jansen first. But Jansen doesn't seem to have much of a trade market. They don't want to, you know, uh, kick in 
some cash to kind of move him, which they probably should do, according to our model. He's a little underwater. So they've got a, um, you know, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a, uh, rock and a hard place in terms of those moves. Um, and then there's just sort of the overarching question of, hey, they're in the AL East. The Yankees are looking dominant with the moves they've made. You know, Baltimore is looking dominant with getting Burns, adding to that great core. You know, Tampa Bay is Tampa Bay. You know, you know, so Toronto is still coming. So, like, where even if you do go for it, are you gonna is it going to be worth it? All of those things are happening, I'm sure, behind the scenes in Boston. Those discussions are like, is it worth it? Are we going all in or are we playing for the longer term? It seems like they're saying they're playing for the longer term. And if they can get a wild card, great, but they're not going to like break the bank for it. Yeah. And and I honestly, that's probably not the worst approach when you just look at it from the roster's perspective and the type of talent they have coming up from the, from the farm that isn't quite big league ready. You know, just looking at that, that might be the correct approach for this team. But then when you factor that they're the Boston Red Sox, I think that has some people kind of upset and, and thinking that they're not necessarily one of these teams that yeah. should be slow rolling it. They should be pushing and, and using that financial muscle. Um, totally. And the, the Devers comments the other day also pointed to that. Like, hey, hey, guys, let's get competitive here. Like, he wants to win, right? Obviously. And who can blame him? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then the kind of wild card thrown into all of this is there's still like a randomly high amount of buzz around a Jaron Duran trade. And you look at him and his performance last year and you figure he's like an important piece for the team. And if he was getting traded, it would have happened a couple months ago. So that's a weird one. And and as you mentioned, uh, Robbie did an article for us and, and he mentioned some possibilities there as well. So that, that'll be linked in the show notes. Would highly recommend giving that a read. Um, I think the other thing I need to mention about the Red Sox here is that shortly after the Schreider deal, they did sign Liam Hendricks to a two-year contract. Hendricks is rehabbing Tommy John. Um, might not be available in 2024. If he is, it'll be closer to the end of the season. Um, but this is primarily a move, as we've seen in the past with these kind of two-year prove-it deals. Um, it, it's primarily a move for the second year. Um, it's a it's a $8 million, or excuse me, a $10 million guarantee. Uh, two million in 2024, six million in 2025, so it's heavily backloaded. And then there is a 2026 option with a two million dollar buyout, and there's a whole lot of incentives baked into there. So there's if if Hendricks comes back and is the same guy that he was before, you know, the cancer diagnosis and before the Tommy John surgery, it's a great deal for both him and for the team. He's going to get a lot of money and incentives, and then he's going to hit the free agent market again in 2026. Uh, since that's a mutual option and he's probably going to uh, get himself a nice payday then as it's kind of his last big contract as, as he closes out his career in, into his late 30s if he's not back if there's complications coming back then oh well it's 10 million dollars over the course of three years that's not going to break the bank for the red sox at all so yeah. really smart deal i don't think anybody can complain about this whatsoever Everybody loves Liam Hendricks. He's one of the best guys in the game. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Red Sox fans should be thrilled to have him for however long they do and wishing him all the best in his recovery. I want to see him back on the, on the mound, uh, throwing out four letter words in Boston. Totally. Yeah. I mean, he's obviously had a rough couple of years here between the uh, cancer and the Tommy John. So he is a great guy. Everybody loves him. So let's hope for the best for him. I think it's good that he's getting paid. He's got some financial security now. Um, and then, um, for the Boston side, it looks like it's a no-brainer. Like, yes, uh, yeah, we've got a bargain. 
you know, and we've talked about this before with the incentives. If he pitches well and, you know, basically adds more value, then he gets paid more. So those just kind of go up in lockstep. So his value will continue, you know, the more the better he pitches, the better, more money he'll earn and everybody's happy. So hopefully it's a win-win for both sides. Yeah, agreed. I do want to take a quick minute for the other side of the Schreiber deal, uh, Schreiber deal with the Royals. I still don't quite get their off season. They, they've, you know, they've raised the floor of the team, which I think is good and I think is inoffensive in, in most cases here. Um, they bring in Schreiber. Uh, they also brought in Nick Anderson and Chris Stratton and Will Smith this off season to kind of stock up the bullpen a little bit. Uh, when you look at the group there, it's still not going to knock your socks off or anything, but it's at least like a collection of guys that you could expect to be at least replacement level and have maybe a little bit of upside beyond that. So they raised their floor there. They did something a little bit similar in the rotation, but maybe just a little bit higher profile by bringing in Michael Waka and Seth Lugo and Jordan Lyles. And so that's, or, or sorry, Lyles was already on the team, uh, but bringing in uh, Waka and Lugo, um, those are just kind of steady Eddie mid-rotation type guys, again, raising the floor of the team. They brought in an Adam Frazier and a Garrett Hampson and Hunter Renfro. And so at the end of the day, this is still not a very good baseball team, I don't think. They would still need a lot of things to break right for them to really um, become like a, a considered a, a true contender, a true good baseball team. But A, they're playing in the AL Central, so if they're going to be a mediocre baseball team that wants to make the playoffs, that's the division to do it in. And B, as we talked about on previous episodes here, um, a lot of this is kind of show me stuff as they push for funding for a new stadium, right? Where they can't keep losing a hundred games every year and saying, Hey, taxpayers, give me your money because we deserve it. They need to put something that's, you know, <laughs> the, the famous uh, infamous, I think it was Billy Bean quote of the uh, representative product. Yep. Uh, they need to put a representative product on the field that doesn't totally embarrass the community and can uh, help them swindle money from taxpayers. So that's that's part of the incentive here, I'm sure. And I'm I'm sure part of it is just, hey, we've been bad for a couple of years and we want to be less bad. And I think that side of it, you know, has value, even if it's an incremental addition. If it's taking you closer to just having a solid, watchable team, I think it's a good thing and and should be. You know, there's not enough of that in the game. I think there's from a from like a watchability standpoint, teams are very content these days to just throw out whatever slop they can so that they can get their hundred losses and their early draft pick and then call it a day there. And it's it's I think it's worth commending the teams that kind of buck the norm there and, and try to put something OK on the field for their fans. Um, I don't think it's quite enough here to put them squarely into contention. And I think you have to acknowledge the ulterior motive here, but totally. Yeah. I, that's where I'm at. I, I, I think it's very clear that, you know, they're, they're trying to get a new stadium and so they need to make the product better, right. In order to sell that case. And they're not signing superstars here. They're signing guys, you know, Hunter Renfro. He's not a superstar. Adam Frazier is not a superstar. They're just raising the floor as you pointed it out. Uh, but there's nothing going on here, which is, I mentioned this earlier, their farm is terrible. Um, there's just, there's not a whole lot coming, right? And so what do you do? you got a bad MLB team and a bad farm. Pick, so pick your poison. You could wait and still have a bad MLB team, and it may take you years after draft picks and so on to get a strong farm and just wallow in badness for a while. 
especially when you're trying to get a new stadium, that's not good. So your other option is sign some guys and hopefully you win, you know, 80 games at best, maybe 75 as opposed to 60. So 55. So it's a little bit more fun as a, you know, for, for the fans at least, you know, and it also buys some time. I think is the other thing going on. You know, when you're playing Hunter Renfro and, and Adam Frazier, it buys sometimes for the guys who are kind of developing still at the major league level to kind of figure it out, right? So you get MJ Melendez, who was a top prospect, has not figured it out. Vinny Pasquantino, who is a good bat for space, but he's injured a lot, hasn't totally delivered yet. Michael Massey, Massey at second, Michael Garcia at third. These are young guys that have already been brought up, but that have not made their mark yet. So by adding some veterans around them, you give them a little breathing room. Say, okay, it's not all on you. We'll, we'll carry you for a while. Just figure it out. There's no pressure. So it relieves that sort of pressure and gives them a little bit more of a balance as a team. And that also helps. And same with the rotation with Waka and Lugo. It's not all on Cole Raggins and Brady Singer. So um, you've got, you know, I think it's smart. The raising of the floor makes total sense from a baseball point of view to give those guys some room to grow. But it also, I think, is clearly to raise the bar in terms of, hey, let's get a new stadium. Let's put in, at least put something watchable so it's not just Bobby Witt and a bunch of guys. It's maybe Bobby Witt and some not terrible guys and some rookies who may develop. Right. And then I think the other factor in here, and apologies, I don't have the specifics on this pulled up, so I'm not going to have the exact details right here. But with the new draft lottery system in the CBA, you are, I believe, unable to get a top six pick in three consecutive years or something along those lines. Um, and we saw that actually yeah, happen right. with the Nationals. I believe in the last right. draft lottery, right. they were selected for the first overall pick, but it had to be kind of re-rolled because they were no longer eligible for that pick and they got bumped down to like seven or eight or something. Again, I don't have the exact details right, but essentially, if if this is related to that, then that's the exact intent of that rule change of we can't just have teams wallowing so they can get the first or second pick year after year. We got to give them some reason to try sometimes and you know kick them out of that eligibility for those best picks and... Um, this could be related to that potentially, or I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's a combination yeah, yeah. of all of the factors that we've we've mentioned already. Yeah, in other words, it's you can't just tank like the 2013 Astros. You can't just like tank for a few years and get your high draft picks and your Carlos Correas and your and your and your Bregmans, and then you're good in 2017. You can't do that anymore. It's going to be a little bit more complicated now, so you have to address. Okay, another relief trade. Uh, the Marlins traded left-handed reliever Stephen Okert, who we had at $3.5 million in surplus trade value, to the Twins in exchange for utility man Nick Gordon at $0.2 million. Uh, this one does go through the model as a minor overpay by the Marlins. It's certainly not the first time we've seen the Marlins you know, seemingly undervalue their relievers. We actually saw it between these two teams uh, last deadline when... We had the trade of Dylan Floro to the Twins and Pablo Lope, or not Pablo Lopez, that one would have been a heist, uh, Jorge Lopez Jorge, <laughs> to, yeah. to the Marlins. Um, we had that as an, uh, a slight overpay in Minnesota's favor as well, where we had Floro higher than Lopez. Um, and I think, going back, even the original deal where they acquired Dylan Floro, I think we had that as an overpay. I, I may be mistaken on that one. That was Alex Vesia and uh, I think Kyle Hurt. Um, going to the Dodgers. And so we, we've seen kind of a tendency here where they have a surplus of relievers. They're pretty good at churning them out. 
you know, I think they deserve a little bit of credit there as well. It's not quite the Mariners system, but they, they have a good system going in the bullpen uh, in Miami. And they had a surplus there, and they desperately need offense, especially hitters that are capable of playing the infield. And Gordon can also play some outfield. He's a true utility guy. Um, apparently, they've liked him for a while. He actually just, um, I believe, lost his arbitration case against the Twins like a day before this trade. Um, so, so there's that aspect of it as well. And then the Twins, you know, they've had kind of a crowded um, offensive picture for a while now and a lot of prospects coming up that might need opportunities. And you don't want Nick Gordon to get in the way of that. So, I mean, makes a lot of sense on both sides. This is kind of exactly what we were talking about before with the kind of error bars and margins on these lower single digit trades where you know if if the twins are holding pat and saying like we're not going to give you anything on top of gordon and we want okert and the marlins really like gordon then they're they're not going to nix this deal over such a small gap like if they they like gordon as a fit for their roster better than they like okert right now and they want to make the deal happen they're just going to make it happen and not lose any sleep over it yeah and keep in mind gordon was injured a big chunk of last year and had put up some pretty decent numbers the year before. So, um, so we didn't, you know, and projection systems are not great. And we, we try to do our best with injury risk, but you're not quite sure. You know, we, we can't see medicals. We don't know if he's healthy or not, how that injury might affect him for this year. Anyway, so we pretty much have to play it by the book, but they may know more than we do in terms of health. So there's that on Gordon's side. But it's not a big overpay or anything. So it's not anything to get worked up about. Gordon is also out of options. So if he's bad, if you get bad Gordon, then you have really no choice but to DFA him. So his value is going to be low anyway. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I think it makes sense for the Twins um, because, you know, they're you know, obviously trying to stay competitive and picking up a veteran is always good. In that respect, Okert has been effective. Um you know, and, and Miami is pitching rich and position player poor, typically, so they're always looking to kind of upgrade. So maybe they see something they can work with here in Gordon. So I think that's all there is to it. Yeah, inoffensive is the way I would put it. Yep. And speaking of, last trade that we have to talk about, very minor. John even forgot it happened. Uh, the Yankees acquired left-handed pitcher Clayton Andrews at 0.2 from the Brewers in exchange for right-handed pitcher Joshua Quezada, who we did not yet have in the system. So tentatively accepted by the model. It's it's going to be a low value for a low value here. Um, coinciding moves here, uh, I think the Brewers had DFA'd Clayton Andrews, um, possibly to make room for Gary Sanchez. No, the timeline's wrong on that. Uh, that was to, uh, I believe the Clayton Andrews DFA was tied to the Corbin Burns trade. Um, so there was that one. He had lower, They had lower leverage on him since he was DFA'd. And then on the Yankees side of things, they've added a few left-handed relievers this offseason. And uh, Kezot, or excuse me, Andrews took the roster spot of Scott Efros, who was transferred to the 60-day injured list uh, because he had back surgery in December. So just shuffling around for relief depth, I don't think there's too much to read into here. Josh, I didn't even know who Clayton Andrews was. I completely forgot about that trade, and I didn't lose any sleep over it. I knew about him from Out of the Park Baseball, which I used to play religiously. And for a couple years there, he was this random reliever that you could always get super cheap, and he was always really good as a lefty. So that's why I know him, and okay, that's fine. about it. I couldn't tell you anything <laughs> about what he looks like or how hard he throws or anything else. But uh, he's, he's a left-handed pitcher, and uh, he's on the Yankees now. All right, good for him. Uh, let's talk a few extensions. So 
first, let's start out with the one that actually happened. Uh, the Pirates extended Mitch Keller. It's a five-year, $77 million guarantee. Um, it, it tacks on, it, it starts this season. So he had already agreed to an arbitration deal. So it's, you know, an extra four years of guaranteed money at like 71 and a half-ish in, in new money. Um, on the surface, you know, Mitch Keller had a bit of an up and down start to his career, but he's kind of settled in as just a solid arm and a guy that it makes a lot of sense that the Pirates would want to keep in town. Uh, last year, you know, the 421 ERA isn't amazing, but peripherals liked him a little bit better. He made all 32 starts, you know, struck out guys, didn't walk too many, didn't give up too many homers, just a really solid arm. And I think you can look at his numbers and his pedigree and say maybe there's even a little bit more in the tank than that. So I think it's a super inoffensive deal. I, I think it's good that they have a guy like this locked up now in Pittsburgh where they haven't necessarily been making a push yet, you know, for contention. They've been kind of continuing to be the Pirates and add on the peripheries and bring in a Marco Gonzalez and, and hope that works kind of a thing. Uh, but they are making these choices of extending Brian Hayes, extending Brian Reynolds, extending Keller here, and starting to kind of build their core as some of their younger guys get to the big leagues. So I like that from their perspective, and the numbers really like this from their perspective. Do you want to do you want to get into that? Well, it came in a little bit low, and uh, we've we've um, updated our our our. Um numbers so that he's now reflecting trade value rather than uh predicted extension value so can't, i don't quite remember what it was but we we're a little bit low i think because he signed for what 77 for five years yeah i believe the model had an extension somewhere in like the 100 112 yeah. range something like there. that somewhere in there yeah um i'm not yeah i'm totally sure but anyway it came in low as a team-friendly deal um and, you know, look, the, one of the reasons, so let me just talk about that for a second. So there's a kind of a sliding scale. As you get closer to free agency, the more the probability goes higher that you're going to test free agency. If you're one year away from free agency, you know, you're probably not going to sign an extension because you're so close. You probably just want, well, I'll do it if you can give me market value now. They haven't tested the market, but they have a sense of what their market value is if they wait a year. So when you're one year away from free agency, you're pretty much going to get you know, you're going to ask for market value. So think about Pete Alonso right now. For example, if the Mets extended him, he would want market value as opposed to, you know, so that he wouldn't have to go to um, the market. And because he's like, well, I can get, um, I can get what the market will pay for me, or you can pay that money now. Is basically the choice. When you're two years away, you're sort of like, okay, well, I'm two years away from free agency. I can give a little bit because I want financial security. When you're three, four, five, six years away, you're going to want a lot. You're going to, you know, it's much more team friendly because you're so far away from getting that payday. Injuries can happen. All sorts of things can happen in between. So you're more likely to take a lower AAV deal because, you know, the, you know, the risk involved. Uh, so that it becomes more team friendly the more control you have. So two years, um, the way we factored that into our model, you're getting closer to free agency. So you're, your numbers are going to go up. That's why we had them a little bit higher than what the, um, uh, the Pirates paid him. Having said that, what we typically use as a rule of thumb is start with surplus value. From the team perspective, um, his surplus value was in the 30s. As it happens, he signs this deal. It's still in the 30s. Right now, it's at 37.8. So basically, from the team perspective, is we've still got the benefit of the same surplus value. Uh, it's just extended over five years instead of two, as it was before. And then further, um, to add on your point about sort of extending the core, 
you know, what they're seeing now is an emerging core of young talent, and they're seeing a window. And they're like, okay, our window may not be this year, but it might just think we have an outside shot of a wild card. They made a little bit of noise last year, uh, but it's really probably more realistically 25 through like 28 or so. So they need guys like Keller to be with them through 28 or so, right? So, and Reynolds and, and Hayes. So that's what they're doing because those guys that are coming up now are going to start to blossom and they're going to be good in those years. So I think that's what they're looking at. So it was a really smart deal from a valuation point of view and from a window point of view. Yeah, uh, agreed. And you look at Mitch Keller, it's it's really hard to really tell you what Mitch Keller is today. And I wonder if that kind of plays into the delta there in our projection for him and what he actually got. Because yep. he, he was a top prospect, very highly regarded. He makes his big league debut in 2019, and it doesn't go very well. He had a 7.13 ERA, but the peripherals were really strong because he had a 4.75 BABIP against, which is just insane. Even even just 11 starts, 48 innings, that is an insanely high number. Well, what happened in 2020? Oh, great, he had a 2.91 ERA and a 104 BABIP against, so it, it evened itself out. Um, but between those two seasons, you're like, okay, what the heck is this guy? What are we actually looking at here? And then you get to 2021, and again, it's an ERA over six, with the peripherals looking a little bit better, but nothing... This isn't looking like a top prospect who is now catching his stride at the big league level at age 25. Last two seasons, he's really righted the ship, and especially in 2023, he was really just solid, like I said. Like, he's not an ace necessarily, but you could picture him having that in the tank. Like, he's got a lot of the tools under his belt to just kind of take that last step forward and really push to the front of the rotation. And even if he doesn't, even if he's just the guy that he was in 2023, even if he's close to the guy he was in 2022, that is a solid arm to have around and to be able to pencil into the rotation for the next five years. So yeah, I think it's a no-brainer. And I think you're right that they now have this core set up that will hopefully give them a good foundation for their next competitive window in the next couple of years when guys like O'Neill Cruz are back from their injury and hitting full stride or guys like Henry Davis are making their impact at the big league level, or they figure out what they have in Quinn Priester. Like there's, there's a lot of guys that have already started to kind of crack at the big league level. And they're, it's, it's a little bit like the Royals, but maybe with a little bit more of optimism baked in Yeah, I where they have so. these young guys who have made it to the big league level, haven't established themselves yet but also haven't busted yet. Like we still just don't know yet. And they're still trying to filter out like, what is Nick Gonzalez? What is he going to give us? What is Andy Rodriguez when he comes back from injury? Like there's still question marks here. And so they're not pushing all their chips in yet, but if they get some clarity on it, this, this season, and they start to separate the wheat from the chaff, find out what holes they have, which guys they want to trade, which guys they want to commit to. I think you could see them, you know, it's the pirates. You're never going to see them, hand out those $300 million contracts or make the huge blockbuster trades. But I think you can see them be a little bit more aggressive next off season. If some of these guys start to kind of establish themselves this year. Yeah. And don't forget about uh, Paul Skeen's top draft choice. And right. Right. A lot, a lot of experts think he could go into the majors rotation right now. I don't know if I'd buy that, but they'll give him some time in the minors and see what he has. But, um, but he's probably not far away is my point. And he could technically be the ace of that rotation if, if all things play out well. Um, I just wanted to make one other point on um, on Keller. If you look at his FIP, it's definitely, yes, there was a lot of variance in there, but it's really stabilized the last two years or so. 
it went to from 49 in 2021 to 399 to 3.7 is uh, another sort of key sort of statistic to look at is the the difference between his strikeouts and his walks so k minus bb and that rate um, that has really gone down as well you know or it should say gone up really the last two years the difference between um those were 11.4 percent and then 18 percent 23 so he's really kind of coming into his own um, so and apparently likes it in Pittsburgh as well. So they've made, named him the opening day, opening day starter, which is great. Um, and I do think they um, are probably looking at a team like the Braves and saying, okay, let's lock up our core like the Braves have. Let's get that going. That's probably best practice. Um, so they could maybe look at a David Bednar. I know he's a reliever and relievers are volatile, as we just said, um, but he's been pretty consistent, and he might be another guy to look at in terms of uh, future extension. Um, obviously, with some of the kids coming up, they might look at one of those guys as well, much like is a trend lately. You start to see extensions happening even before they've made their debuts. I don't know if I would go that far, but I'm sure Pittsburgh would like a team-friendly deal um, for some of those you know, higher sort of caliber prospects that are, have a higher probability of making impact. So we might see some moves like that, Bednar, maybe one of the other kids getting extended. Yeah, uh, agreed. And I think... O'Neill Cruz might be too high variance of a player right now. Like even before the injury, he was very high variance and the injury just makes it even more difficult. So I don't, I wouldn't hold my breath on an extension for him right now, but even like a, I could see them doing something really smart with like Jack Sawinski where he didn't really have prospect type, but he's made it to the big leagues and he's, he's a limited player, but a valuable one. And I wonder if they could get like a really cheap deal done with him with like some some options and escalators that make it attractive to him yeah um, but that, like kind of lock him in long term as like this is a really solid platoon bat with some power and a little speed and some on-base ability and we're just going to keep him around and you know even if in year five of this deal he's a bench bat we're only going to be paying him eight million dollars and it's not going to kill our team by that point you you could do that or you could do remember brian reynolds had a deal where they bought out a couple of arbitration years um and maybe do that just to give him some cost certainty to say hey we like you and so you know a little give on both sides i could see that happening too yeah certainly all right let's talk about a couple guys who haven't been extended yet or i guess <laughs> i guess in this first case he previously was extended uh, so Ronald Acuna Jr., there was a headline, it was kind of an irresponsible headline that was like, ah, he wants a new deal. And it was really blowing the actual quote that he said out of proportion, a little bit out of con on context. It, was, it wasn't him saying like, hey, I need a new contract, I'm not getting paid enough, which is true, he's not getting paid enough. It was more along the lines of, yeah, I want to be a brave for life. It was just one of those, you know, common superstar says this about the team that he's been with his whole career and just says yeah make me a lifetime brave um so i wouldn't read too far into it as you know active extension negotiations are happening and this guy's gonna get a 700 million dollar deal or anything like that but just wanted to mention it you know kind of strike while the iron is hot on on the news front and point out that wow is he underpaid <laughs> he's he has yeah. five years remaining on his deal at 85 million dollars uh, over those five years, we have his uh, his field value at $321.5 million, <laughs> which is a lot. It is. Um, he did just win the MVP. <laughs> um, he is only 26, and uh, that gives him a surplus of $236.5 million. So, which is number two on our list of yep. highest surplus players in MLB. Yep. Right. And an extension wouldn't set that to zero. 
Like that's not how it works. The the team has no there's no they're in no hurry to extend him. They still have five years left of him. Um and they have no nothing is forcing their hand to pay him market rate since they've already kind of banked in these like well below rate and well above average surplus years. Um but it perhaps makes it a little bit easier for them to find a common ground where, you know, maybe he doesn't get this massive record setting deal, but the team wants him, you know, five years puts him at his age, like 31 season that, that they'd control him through on the current deal. I think you expect Ronald Acuna, given his current trajectory to be a very valuable player well beyond that season. And so there's a, there's a happy medium here somewhere where he's getting market rate you know you buy out another five or seven of his free agent years beyond that point at closer to a market rate and you know maybe you even get a little bit of a discount there and so in totality Acuna is guaranteed more money and you still retain some of the surplus you got from these five years up front again there's no there's no pressing need for this extension right now five years is a long time a lot can happen and from the team's perspective, you know, you want to keep your superstar happy, but what's the value of that, right? They're not going to say, okay, we'll restructure your deal and give you $300 million over the next five years. Like, that's not how it works. That's There's no reason for them to do that. The, the value of keeping Ronald Acuna Jr. happy is not, you know, the $200 million delta that there is right now. But just something to keep an eye on. I don't think there's anything pressing here. Uh, but just wanted to point out those ridiculous yeah. numbers. And, uh, you know, there there's a happy medium here somewhere. So there's a precedent as well. Jose Altuve, in his first couple of years, I think was on a fixed contract that was massively below value as he really came into his own. And then they sort of corrected for that when they gave him that next extension at like $29, $30 million a year. And they said, hey, we, we like you here. You're an Astro for life. We want to keep you here. So let's make you happy. In a way, it was sort of compensating for the underpay of the earlier years. Um, arguably Salvador Perez with the Royals, they kind of did that as well. They kind of overpaid a little bit in his next one, but those those were slightly different situations because they were nearing the end of their contract. This this one is different. He's got five years left. Yes, everyone knows he's massively overpaid. It's not just our model, but everybody knows it. So it's ridiculous how much he's overpaid. And this isn't even including the years prior to this when he was getting like a million a year or whatever, like ridiculously low number. Um, so he deserves to make more money. Yes, it's true. One thing I could maybe suggest is to kind of line up his years of control with some of the other guys that they've extended. So, for example, um, Lacuna has five years left on his deal. Michael Harris has seven. Strider has six. Uh, but if you look at Austin Riley, he's got nine years uh, left. Um, I have to check Olsen and some of the others. But the let's say you use Riley as a benchmark and say, okay, he's got nine years left of control. We want to be good for the next nine years. So let's maybe figure out another sort of four for Acuna, which would take him to his age, through his age 34 or 35 season. Maybe something like that. Or you could go a little step further, and you know, typically age 37 is kind of a benchmark. Um, a lot of guys have contracts through age 37, like Lindor. So you could say, maybe we want you a brave for life, and so we'll send you up through age 37. So tack on another, whatever that is, uh, 10, 11 years, uh, five or six years, and make it a closer to, not necessarily market value, but obviously higher than what he's making now, just to make him happy, keep a lot of the surplus value. But you don't need quite as much of an obscene surplus value as you have right now, but you can give a little bit. Now, there's no pressure to do that, to your point. So it would be totally out of the goodness of their hearts and or from a business standpoint, to kind of make sure your 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 star is happy 
you know, and it keeps him in the fold for, for life. Maybe there's some value. Yeah, I think there is some value to that. So they can talk a little bit about that, but I don't think it's a serious burning issue right now. Right. And I think looking at the roster, there's one that might be a little more pressing even in Ozzy Albies. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny. Like I, I forgot the specifics of the contract. So I typed in, you know, just, just a quick Google search. I started typing Ozzy Albies contract extension and I got to Ozzy Albies contract. And the first result for like the autofill was Ozzy Albies contract bad. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's another one. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it was a it was a seven year thirty five million dollar deal. So obviously Albies is not the caliber of player that Acuna is, but he's still a really really good player, and he's only guaranteed twenty eight million dollars over the next four years. Um, we have him at close to a hundred in field value over that span. So again, it's not a pressing issue. You have some time to work with here, and you don't necessarily want to overpay for a second baseman or anything. But at some point, you know. They have so much of this surplus accumulated. There is, like you're saying, there is some benefit to like doing right by your guys and uh, making sure that they are paid closer to what they're worth and, and they're being kind of rewarded for their strong performance on the field here because Albies is one of the better second basemen in the game and he has been for a handful of years now and he hasn't been paid like it and it's kind of unfortunate. But um, yeah, so, so again, nothing too pressing with any of these guys um but i I suppose something to keep an eye on in in the years going forward Uh, a little bit more pressing we will stay within the nl east though is pete alonzo so there was a little bit of buzz about this um just just because it's his last year it's his walk year and there have been other teams interested there have been trade rumors um he wants to be a met uh but he said he's you know he's open to hitting the free the free agent market and this is one of those cases where it's it's a less extreme version of Vlad Guerrero Jr., I guess I'd say, where Pete Alonso is a good baseball player. He is also a limited baseball player. You know, he's one one dimensional might be a little bit rude, but he's he's not an Ozzy Albies. He's not a Ronald Acuna Jr. He does one thing really, really well. He does a couple other things okay, but at the end of the day, you know, you don't want to be handing this guy a $300 million contract and having him, you know, he's, he, I can't even put him in the same sentence as an Albert Pujols or Miguel Cabrera, but that's the kind of albatross you'd be risking if you're handing this guy too much money. Um, That being said, valuable power hitter, really likable guy. They, there's, there's a deal here that would work well for both sides, you know, just, just, Pulling him up in our future extension value tool, a six-year deal at 144 million, like that's inoffensive. That's, you know, maybe that's even a little bit further than I would be willing to go with him. But when you're talking Steve Cohen bucks, like that makes a lot of sense. Um, I wonder if part of their reservation here, part of well, part of why a deal hasn't been done yet is I believe he's a Scott Boris client. Is that correct? Um, yes, he is a Scott Boris client, yeah. so makes sense that he would take him to free agency, um, or, or be inclined to do so. But I wonder if part of the reasoning here is just the kind of surplus of infield prospects that the Mets are still kind of shaking out and trying to figure out who's going to play where you don't want a scenario where Brett Beatty and Mark Vientos both click and you need a spot for them. And whoops, we locked up Pete Alonso. So first base just isn't an Mm -hmm. option for those guys. So that might be part of it as well as just, you know, 
trepidation and and you know cohen's been burned before by some of the big spending and he doesn't want it to happen again you know i think if pete alonzo were a pending free agent two or three years ago when cohen was on the big spending spree he would have been locked up no questions asked but having seen some of the negative impact of that uh, spending spree and how it didn't quite work out i think cohen is a little bit more cautious now and i think that's applying in this case yeah, I don't think Cohen is worried about like, oh, I've got an underwater contract. Oh no. Like he's got so much money, he doesn't care about that. What he cares about more about, do I have a good baseball team? Is is if if I lock somebody up is it going to block somebody else that's young and up and coming? I think that's more the the case. And and David Stern's obviously no dummy. He's taking over the controls, so he's trying to get sustainable success. They're using this year to see what they've got. In Vientos and Beatty, guys who haven't quite made their mark yet. And to your point, if they do make their mark, you don't want to get stuck with Alonzo if they're blocking, if they're going to get blocked by him. And Alonzo, for as beloved as he is, yes, Mets fans can kind of, and I say this as a guy who lives in the New York City area, they can overrate him. I mean, he's not a batting average guy, obviously. He's a home run guy. He hits the ball hard. Not a great defender. He certainly improved at first base, but he is a first baseman. First basemen generally don't have a lot of market value because of the position. is you know, the easiest one to play on the field. So what you're really talking about here is a thumper. And thumpers without a whole lot of other value, generally the market has discounted for them in the last few years. There have been home run champs who couldn't get a job. There's been Luke Voigt's who couldn't get a job. Still can't. You know, so like, you know, he's a little better than Luke Voigt, but he's not that different of a profile. He's just a higher quality version of that. So uh, I know this is blasphemy to Mets fans, but it really is speaking the truth. Like he's not worth this huge amount of money. So I think our valuation numbers are in the ballpark. But yeah, you want to make a smart choice there. I guess is the point we're making. You don't want him to block young guys if, in fact, they do start to break out. Yeah, it's in a lot of ways, it's similar to kind of the second base question where, you know, yes, he is, you know, importantly, significantly better than Luke Voigt. However, if you start to see him decline a couple of years from now, then he is there there's less meaningful of a gap between him and Luke Voigt and there's at any given point a half dozen Luke Voigts that are available for free for a right. minor league deal or a low cost big league deal right. and and any one of those Luke Voigts can click into a 3 to 4 win Pete Alonso season just randomly on a whim and that's always you know that's not a guarantee whereas with an Alonso you feel pretty good that you're going to get a 3 to 4 win season pretty consistently at least right now but when you start to get into his early to mid 30s then the risk factor increases there and the calculus just makes it a little less clear so again valuable player good baseball player he's going to get paid somewhere but not some mega deal and there is substantial risk involved in there he's he's truly a you know big power, big RBI, like, you know, a traditional darling, right? That's why he's gotten paid so well in arbitration. And if it were 20 years ago, this dude would be breaking a contract record because look at all the RBIs. <laughs> but mm. we've learned a lot since then. And he's a solid, consistent offensive threat. And, like, I don't want to deny the people that watch a game with Pete Alonso in it or – the, the people who set the lineups in New York and say, this guy brings an impact, brings a presence to the lineup. He lengthens out our, our lineup. They, 
they don't want to walk guys in front of him because they're scared of what his back can do. I don't want to deny like those feelings <laughs> and, and like there's some there's some value to that and some truth to that. But there's also some truth to what we've learned about this profile of player and how they age and how, you know, readily available they are, you know, at the next cut below the Pete Alonso level. So that's all it is. It's not that he's yeah. bad. It's not that we're saying he's bad. It's that this archetype of player is not one to trust with, you know, nine digit contracts in the same way you would trust a plus defensive shortstop or center fielder. Yeah, exactly. As he gets older, the limited defensive value he has right now is also going to decline. So you may end up as a as a DH type. Uh, so maybe he's you know, JD Martinez in his thirty four, thirty five age years. I don't know. Um, but I um, just wanted to touch on his trade value. So he has one year left of control. Um, he is he just um, in his salary. He's making about twenty million a year. We think he's worth on you know field value point of view about thirty three. So he's got twelve ish thirteen in surplus value right now, um, and that's including um, a draft pick. So let's say you know he does end up declining. Let's say the Mets issue him a qualifying offer. He declines it. They get a draft pick. That's part of that. So if you traded him, I'm not saying he's going to get traded, but if they did, they traded to a team before the season started. They would also get the value of that draft pick, and that's what that's baked into the number. So that thirty three point two ish is including that uh, number. So in other words, there's not a even when you include that, there's not a lot of surplus value because of what we're saying. Also, because he's already making twenty million a year. So you know, as a free agent, he's probably going to get in somewhere in the twenties. Uh, you know, when he hits the market next year, but that's kind of where he's at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's stay in the territory of the big boppers here, and let's talk about the Giants signing Jorge Soler to a three-year, forty-two million dollar deal. Um, this actually was right in line with the model. We had him at forty-two point nine million in field value for those three years, which raises some questions for me. But we'll get to that in a second. Um, the other interesting wrinkle from this deal, which just came out this morning, was and and there was some you know, some buzz in previous days about, oh, you know, the Giants were also looking at J.D. Martinez, but he just didn't want to play in San Francisco. And that was overblown and <laughs> seemingly just not true at all. Um, the two sides, Martinez and the Giants, were negotiating, uh, according to reports from Alex Pavlovich and Mark Feinsand. And the Giants made Martinez a $14 million offer. Martinez countered at $20 million and might have had some room to go down, but the Giants just weren't interested there and pivoted to Solaire instead. Um, it's interesting for a few different reasons. One being that we project Martinez at $9.6 million for one year, so even that $14 million initial offer is pretty significantly beyond that number, and then $20 million is just like blowing it out of the water. Um, so I, I don't know which team J.D. Martinez expects to commit $20 million to him at this point in the offseason, but maybe that's why he's still a free agent. Um, end of the day, you know, they're, they're two similar profile players. Soler's a lot younger than Martinez, a lot less consistent than Martinez, and can also, like, kind of pretend to hold a glove in left field if he has to. Um not that that's like a huge difference maker in the deal, but it's it's that and his age are the reason he's getting three years, whereas it's a one-year conversation for Martinez. But end of the day, both players offer, you know, some big right-handed thump to the lineup for the Giants. They're going to be battling against that ballpark 
you know, it's not a clean, it's not a great fit for either of those guys from a ballpark standpoint, but they're both the type of guys that are good enough hitters, have the type of power to put a ball out of the yard, even in uh, Oracle Park in San Francisco. So, you know, the the fit's pretty similar for both guys. Um, I, I like Solaire a little bit better in this case. The Giants clearly did as well and then brought him in, and I think he's a good match there, albeit, you know, a risky, inconsistent player. And really, this just leaves me wondering, like, who the heck is going to sign J.D. Martinez and, and for how much money? Yeah, the other sort of thing I'll point out with Solaire's contract is um, you'll see a difference um, when you look at our trade value. We got him at $9.3 million in trade value, and that's because uh, he signed us, he got a signing bonus of $9 million, and that is not uh, tradable. So his salaries are $7 million this year plus the nine. So that's he's getting paid 16 total. And then twenty five, he's making thirty thirteen million, and then twenty six, he's making thirteen million. So the part that's tradable is seven plus thirteen plus thirteen, so that's thirty three. So now we have his field value at forty two plus change against thirty three. So that's now so that nine million dollars signing bonus is now the surplus value because that's not tradable. So that's the I just wanted to explain that. Um, you can use in a way um, clever GMs will use that as a tactic particularly if they want to like you know envision trading a guy at the deadline if you're not a contender let's say you sign a reliever you give him a signing bonus his salary is low and next thing you know at the deadline he's not owned much so you can have a little surplus value that is a trick that clever gms will make i'm not saying farhan and his team will are doing that with solaire here i don't think they are i think they're just sort of um it's just i think kind of the way he structured it based on probably negotiations um but yes, the other question is, what about J.D. Martinez? Um, I think he's going to come in a little bit lower than some of the other projections. I've seen $20 million a year-ish because he had a bit of a bounce back here, but he's also a year older. He's still got the defensive limitations, so would not be surprised if he came in a little bit lower than some. Right, and just kind of looking at the the model's performance holistically over these like DH types, I'm left kind of scratching my head. So the model was low on Lourdes Gurriel, and and maybe he's a bit more of an outfielder than anybody else in this conversation, and so maybe that's that's part of that, I guess. Uh, but the model was also low on Teoscar Hernandez. It was uh, it was low on Justin Turner going to the Blue Jays, not an outfielder, but also in this like DH mold. Um, it was right on the money with Soler, and then according to this offer from the Giants, it was low on JD Martinez. So. It's weird. <laughs> I don't know really what to make of all of that. Like, it would it would be so much easier if the model was also low on Solaire, and then it's just this clear case of okay, there's a there's a gap here somewhere. But I wonder, you know, you you could, I guess you could kind of explain it with like, oh, it's late in the off season, you know, if we're saying that guys are starting to get less than they were originally looking for, and kind of just taking the best deal out there, then then maybe. Maybe the model, the model effectively was low on Jorge Soler, and just given the timing, given the way that things have kind of shaped out, like, you know, if if you know if theoretically, you know, the model was higher on this type of player, and it got the Lourdes Gurriel deal right, and it got Teoscar right, and it got Justin Turner right, then it would have been a little bit high on Jorge Soler, but you could have explained that in turn by saying like, oh. His market collapsed. It's late in the offseason. He took the best deal he could get. Like, I guess you could kind of back into that. But I think, I don't know. I think this this Solaire 
data point just kind of confuses things even further. It's it's tough to look at these type of guys from a like strict dollars per war standpoint. You can't really do that because they're, you know, dollars per war isn't linear and teams have have shown a clear history of preferring like offensive war over defensive war when all else is equal. And so it's yeah, it's tough to kind of reconcile all this at least in my head. Yeah, so I think the answer is let's look at all the data. So I'm going to do a piece. I'm going to do three three articles at the end of the off season. One is about how how did we do on the trade, which is kind of our bread and butter, um, which I always do. But then because we introduced this, this off season, we introduced uh, free agents and extensions. We're also going to see how we did on those, and we'll slice and dice it by position as well, um, by starting pitchers and relievers, by position players. But to the extent that we can sort of you know, um, group in certain types of positions. The data is probably going to be a little too small. There's some variance there. Sometimes it'll be off. Sometimes it'll be on. Um, but we'll get a better sense of how we're doing in terms of position. And then over time, just like with anything else, we'll start to see it sort of um, gradually sort of normalize um, the more data we get. So I think that's all it is. Yep. Certainly looking forward to those pieces. Those are always a highlight of the year. Um, let's keep moving forward. There's a few other deals to hit on here. Uh, the Brewers re-signed Brandon Woodruff to a two-year deal, mutual option for 2026. Um, it's a $17.5 million guarantee. It's like severely backloaded here. It's $2.5 million for 2024, which he will not pitch this year um, after undergoing a late season uh, shoulder surgery uh, this past year, 2023, which led to him being non-tendered by the Brewers. Instead, they end up bringing him back. So $2.5 million for that kind of uh, that dead year, and then $5 million for that first year back in 2025. Then the mutual option for 2026 has a $10 million buyout on it. So that's where the bulk of this guarantee is coming from. It's really getting kicked down the road. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot to really break down here. You know regardless of which team signed Brandon Woodruff, it's kind of the same story of, yep, you're not going to have him this year. You're going to hope he's back at least close to what he used to be in 2025, but because it's a shoulder, there's a whole lot of question marks there. And then, you know, I guess, I guess the meaningful factor here is usually mutual options are kind of just tax shenanigans. Like I can't remember the last mutual option that was exercised by both sides. It just doesn't happen because you'd have to be, you know, both sides would have to agree that Brandon Woodruff is worth exactly X amount. Otherwise, you know, if he's worth more than that, he's going to opt out and go earn more as a free agent. If he's worth less than that, then the team's going to say no thank you and, and buy it out. So it's, you know, those mutual options almost never happen, but I wonder if the pre-existing relationship between the team and the player and Woodruff has said a lot of very good things about the Brewers. And, you know, I wonder if that makes this one a little bit more likely than most. But it's also just there's so many question marks on the way to getting there that it's it's almost irresponsible to be thinking too far into the future with, with him still rehabbing such a, a significant injury. Yeah, and I think that's the, the key there is what is the injury, right? It's not a typical Tommy John where you can kind of pencil him in for 12, 18 months or whatever. It's a shoulder injury and a shoulder capsule injury. And based on what I've read from Will Carroll, who runs the Under, under the Knife newsletter, is that is um, it's more serious and the probability is lower that he'll come back, you know, to be the same pitcher that he was. Um, all of which I'm sure the the team knows and factored that into his price. 
Um, but they also wanted to be fair and say, hey, if he does come back and he's good again, um, if he's the old Woodruff that we know, then um, great. And so again, you know, they've added in the incentives to make sure that, um, um, you know, that he gets gets paid for being good again, basically. So I think the risk, I think there's a good combination of risk and reward in this contract. So I wouldn't necessarily take it at face value that it's going to be low um, because there's a very good risk he never pitches again. Um, but there's also, you know, there's wide variance, basically. Either, you know, the floor, the, the, the downside is he never pitches again because it's just too significant of a shoulder injury. Or the upside is, hey, he's back to the old Woodruff, in which case, you know, the incentives will take care of his payment. Um, and it's short enough that if he gets really good again, then he can opt out and go to the map, back to the market because those mutual uh, decisions typically are never made. So, yeah, I think it's kind of got a little bit of everything for everybody here. Yeah, and I mean, if you're a Woodruff, why, you know, all else being equal, why go gamble on your rehab with some other organization you don't know mm -hmm. when you can just stay somewhere you're comfortable? And, mm -hmm. you know, that you and especially with a, with an organization that has such a good track record of developing pitching. So I think it makes all the sense in the world for him. Mm -hmm. um, one other quick mention on the Brewers, uh, Gary Sanchez. I think we mentioned him last time as they signed him to a free agent deal and they have oh, all these catchers. It took them forever to announce it because apparently there were some issues with his medicals, with his uh, wrist injury that he suffered near the end of last season. Um, but eventually the deal was finalized. They took off some of the guaranteed. Uh, I think it's now a $3 million guarantee for him and he can get back up to that $7 million with incentives. So just wanted to mention that while we're here. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention really quick, rewind uh, to the Giants talks. I, I meant to say this earlier. A new contributor, Jacob Taylor, had an article on the site, and that'll be linked in the show notes, um, taking a look at the Giants trade history under Farhan Zaidi. And I thought it was really interesting, kind of a report card for a guy who mm -hmm. has a really good reputation within the, within the industry. Um, but you know, there's some frustration on the fan side of like, he doesn't do enough. He's kind of just shuffling pieces around and all these platoons and the team's not any good. And so I, I thought it was an interesting look at some of the pros and cons of the trades in the Zaidi era. And so yeah, yeah, recommend same. that read. We'll, we'll link that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Cool. Let's move on to the Phillies signing Whit Merrifield to a one-year deal. It's an $8 million guarantee. There's an $8 million club option for 2025 as well and some bonuses so it can max out at two years, 16.6 million. Given some of the other deals that we're gonna talk about in a second here, feels a little bit off, a little bit curious. I'm pulling up the numbers now. I actually don't think I've looked at them yet, um, but he, he makes sense from a fit perspective. Yeah, so, so the model has him at 5.6 as fair value for one year or 8.6 for two years. So this comes through at a pretty clear overpay. Um, I like the fit, like conceptually speaking for the Phillies where he plays a lot of positions. He plays decent defense at most of them. He's a contact bat, you know, brings a few different things to the table that, and some athleticism that that Phillies team is kind of lacking at times when they're running Castellanos and Schwarber out there at the same time and Alec Bohm over at third base. So I like him as kind of this super sub type guy for them who gives them some flexibility around the roster, but the money's just a little bit high for a 35 year old who's primarily a second baseman and isn't going to be expected to be a like plus plus offensive contributor um and the interesting wrinkle here is between this and alec bohm's arbitration win uh the the phillies are pushed above the second luxury tax threshold 
So now there's about a 15, 16, $17 million gap between their current payroll and that highest uh, luxury tax threshold of $277 million, where you start to get the draft penalties. So that's interesting to watch. There's kind of two ways to interpret that. You can say maybe they're treating that 277 as a hard cap. They don't want the tax penalties. And so throughout this season, trade deadline, whatever, they have like $15 million to work with. Or you look at it the other perspective and say they just went past the second luxury tax threshold for Whit Merrifield. And something we've mentioned previously on this podcast is like if you're going to go over you should go over. Like, you don't want to sign some middling reliever that just ekes you over the luxury tax threshold. Like, if you're already paying the tax and getting penalized, then you might as well blow past it. It's just money at that point. And if you have an owner that's willing to spend money, then it's not a real inhibitor. The the draft pick adds a wrinkle in there, but there is an argument here that, okay, now that they've gone past the second one for Whit Merrifield, they should just go sign a Matt Chapman or a Blake Snell or a Jordan Montgomery and say, screw it to the tax and just put the best team on the field that they can. So like I can see both perspectives there. I think the, the former is a little bit more likely that, you know, okay, now they have 15 million to work with this season and that should be plenty to get them some upgrades at the deadline. Um, but it's, they're an interesting team still to keep an eye on as far as these remaining Boris free agents. Yeah, I think, I think they're one of these teams that prioritizes winning over money to some degree. Obviously, not a whole degree, but their 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 owner has you know said some things and done some things in the past. They said, "Yeah, we want to win." And they signed Bryce Harper and the stupid money comment, and then Dombrowski's there, and he loves to spend money and go for it, and that's obviously working for him because they've been a playoff team the last couple of years. So great, they're still in a window. They're still a good team. Um, so I doesn't bother me at all the same with Merrifield because he's basically depth and can play most of the positions except shortstop and he can you know plug a hole here and there and be decent solid you know he's 35 though so you know he's he's certainly obviously in decline um but um the other thing you mentioned Matt Chapman um I think that's a really interesting fit because they're a very sort of offense first kind of team you know they've got you know, they're still rolling out Nick Castellanos in right field and Schwarber. They got to play him at DH and they've got bats, but not a whole lot of gloves, you know. And they've still got Johan Rojas as a rookie, great glove in center field. So there's that, but there's not a lot of great defense. And so if you were to plug him in at third, I just will sort of wonder what effect that might have. Now, maybe that means Bohm moves to the outfield. I don't know, because um, it seems like Harper is, is locked in at first. Um, but it's an interesting sort of question. Like, do they, is that the missing element with the Phillies? Is it defense? Because you've got pitching, but that pitching needs good defense behind them. So maybe you can make a case for that. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah. And I know Bohm's defense has improved, but it's still not anywhere near the Matt Chapman level. And I think, I think on like a surface level, I think they're a better team if they even just like trade Bohm and sign Chapman instead and, and trade Bohm for a reliever, a back-end starter, or whatever. I think that makes them a stronger team. Obviously, there's the tax considerations there of whether they can fit that in. Um, and I also just think the team, the organization, really likes Alec Bohm for some reason. So I'm not saying that that's the most realistic outcome, yeah. especially this late in the offseason, now that we're into spring training, that they're trading Bohm and getting him out of there. But... I I personally, you know, if we were just playing, if I'm get to play GM over here in, in <laughs> Philadelphia, 
that's what I'm looking at. I, I think that I think that since Matt Chapman was traded from the A's, the Phillies have made so much sense as a landing spot, and I'm surprised he hasn't made his way there. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think Bohm has has some. Well, he's a fan favorite, first of all. He's got the hair. He's got the you know. He's got the vibe going on. So I think there's enough to say that that's a front office consideration. But there is that. Um, uh, and yeah, but he has been a little bit of a disappointment and, but then again, he's coming into his 20, age seven, 27 year, which is typically like now you're in your prime window. So maybe he takes a step up. I don't know. We'll see. Just a thought. I've seen a weird subset of Philly's Twitter that thinks Alec Bohm is really good. And I'm sorry, guys, <laughs> he's, he's not there yet. He, he might, might have in the tank, but he but... still could be. <laughs> yeah. But when you look at three years of like, eh, hitting to go with worse than eh defense like eh, that's just not a very good player but yeah, hey he, he might get there he's he's like you said he's 27 and he was a top prospect at one point so we'll see um last kind of quick hit for me uh the padres have shifted xander bogarts to second base and they're gonna let hasan kim play shortstop um there's a lot of reasons this is interesting first and foremost being the Padres just signed Xander Bogarts to a 14 or no that's that's the Tatis extension uh, but they signed him to a very large free agent contract trying to play that pull up the number right now um, I believe it was like 11 or 12 years and 300 and something million um, off the top of my head but signed him to this big deal and part of why they get him and like part of the reporting that was going on that offseason was he wants to stick at shortstop and some teams were looking at him as a second baseman but he wasn't interested in that Suddenly in year two of, okay, 11 years, $280 million on the deal. Suddenly in year two, he's getting shifted to second base. And oh, by the way, it's for Hassan Kim, who's a pending free agent. So that's really interesting to me. Like, I think it's by far the better defensive alignment for this team. Hassan Kim is a really good defensive infielder, and he's he's probably the best defensive infielder on that team. So play him at the most valuable defensive position, and it just makes the rest of the roster perform better. And longer term, as Xander Bogarts gets into his mid to late 30s, yeah, he's going to have to be a second baseman at some point here. He's always been viewed as like kind of a fringy shortstop, so he needs to move over eventually. And, you know, coming up through the pipeline, you look at Jackson Merrill, their top prospect is a shortstop, and they've been trying him out in the outfield to kind of make him fit on this year's roster. But you can see a future where... Hassan Kim, he's either traded at this deadline or walks in free agency, and Jackson Merrill's the opening day shortstop next year. And that's just most most natural position, and he's a very good prospect, and it makes that a very talented team going forward. So, like, for a lot of reasons, this is a very, very logical move. Just the timing of it, you know, year two of the deal, Bogarts is still only 31. He actually wasn't a horrible shortstop defender last year. Um, And just to have this move announced, like, as pitchers and catchers are reporting, basically, just like super early in spring training. Kind of weird. All, all things considered, it just, it it makes sense, but it caught me off guard. I think it caught a lot of people off guard, and I don't know if this means anything greater overall, or if it's just kind of the way that this shook out, but it's weird. I like it. I think it's a good baseball decision. My read on it is, last year they were just sort of like, being a little bit flippant about defense like oh let's just get guys in and we'll figure it out and it seems like preller was just like spending 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 and then we'll figure it out like where did they like they didn't need bogarts but he spent on him anyway like oh we'll figure it out um but it didn't quite work and now it's a new era you know the owner died on 
unfortunately, and then now they've got to cut back in salary. So now it's about getting the most bang for the buck. Let's see how efficient we can get. You know, and, and that includes defense. Like maybe there is a better positioning here, and some you know, Song Kim's defense is better than Bogarts, and so you put them where they are. Uh, optimized, you know, put them where they, they can best perform, and you get maybe you get a couple more wins. That's what this is about. Um, and Bogarts now finally is at a point in his career, finally, when he's accepted the move. From a valuation standpoint, it helps. It, I'm sorry, it hurts a little bit in terms of his overall sort of trade value. It lowers a little bit because second basemen typically are not worth as much. I mean, but we already had that baked into some degree. We knew at some point, to your point, that he was going to move to second in his 30s. So it just happened like a year or two before. Um, I saw something on Twitter where Jeff Passan, uh, somebody said that, uh, Passan said that this is the most underwater contract in baseball. Uh, it's not. Um, they're far worse than this one. Um, it's really, and that's, you know, it's just our model we're talking about here, but, uh, Chris Bryant comes to mind. Obviously you got weird situations with Wander Franco and Steven Strasburg. DeGrom comes to mind, uh, Anthony Rendon. These are all worse contracts. John Carlos Stanton. Yes. John Carlos Stanton. So, you know, He's the twelfth worst contract in ours. It's not even close to being the worst, um, and he can still hit, you know. So there's that. Um, but the other thing is, you you can't necessarily. Some people have a disconnect. Like uh, Jose Altuve just signed an extension. He's a second baseman, right? Probably a little bit better second baseman defensively than Bogarts is. But nonetheless, we've talked a lot about how second base is a kind of a devalued position here. And so, you, on the one hand, you can't just let that slide and say, okay, Altuve is getting fair value. And on the other hand, saying Bogarts is now so far underwater because he's going to like that doesn't make sense logically right you have to sort of judge them by the same uh, yardstick so um anyway long story short the truth lies in the middle <laughs> yes altuve got overpaid a little bit bogarts is overpaid but not as much as people think yeah exactly um and this is also a i think this um takes hasan kim firmly off the trade market for now I don't think you make this big shift and then turn around a week later and trade him to Boston or whatever. So yeah, I think right. that's pretty comfortable. Um, B, this is a roster that really needs some work still, which is wild because they have games in like two or three weeks that actually count. Like they're going to they're going to Korea, like I mentioned earlier. Um, but roster resource has recent signee Jerks and Profar starting in left field and Matthew Batten starting at third base as Manny Machado recovers from his injuries from last season. And Jose Azokar starting in center field. And that's pretty rough. And that's before you even get to, like, the rotation, which is also kind of not the inspiring the most confidence at the back end. So yep. Yep. one option that I've heard by some Padres people is you sign a first baseman, even if it's just kind of a, one of these middle-of-the-pack, you know, the Luke Voigt types. But a veteran first baseman, bump Cronenworth over to third base, improve the defense there, and... You know, maybe you get Jackson Merrill if if he can hold his own and and perform well enough defensively. Him and and Jacob Marcy had a big fall league out here in Arizona. So between those guys, at least one of them maybe grabs one of those outfield spots and inspires a little bit more confidence than Profar or Azokar. Um, but there's got to be at least one more name joining this team. Like this cannot be the full roster going into opening day. There's got to be more here. You can sign Brendan Belt. He's still on the market. That's true. I, I wouldn't hate that fit for them. Yeah, right. He could play first still. He's 36, but he can still play first. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that idea, actually. Um, but one of the weirdest things about this offseason for me is how quiet A.J. Preller has been. 
I mean, you and I are so used to him. Oh no, it's another propeller move. Oh no, it's another propeller move. And he's always like rocking the, the market and the news. And he's been so quiet, you know? Outside, after the Soto trade, obviously, was huge, but that was a while ago. And then it's been not a whole lot going on since then. Yeah, certainly. And and you, the roster has been just as incomplete all off season. So yeah, I wonder if he has a mid to late spring, you know, yeah. random big Jaron Duran trade in him somewhere. But either this is certainly. Being... Go ahead. Either that, or he's just being opportunistic and waiting for a bargain to fall into his laps, which is right. what I tend to think. Right. But this is certainly a team that I am keeping an eye on, and I would expect to have some movement over the coming weeks. Yeah. Um. All right, so that's that's our main hits. Um, I think the last thing we wanted to touch on here was just the rest of the free agent market and how a lot of these guys, especially on the infield side, seem to be getting under market deals. So I'm going to quick list off some of the other free agents that signed um, in the past uh, couple weeks here. Uh, he has Money Grandal to the Pirates, Tim Anderson to the Marlins, Gio Urshela to the Tigers for one year and one and a half million, which is like nothing. Um, it's criminal. Randall Gritchick to the D-backs, Ahmed Rosario to the Rays. I forgot which team for a second there. <laughs> Josh also Fleming. 1.5, yeah. also is way under, yeah. Right. Uh, Josh Fleming, that was to the Pirates as well, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Jerks and Profar to the Padres, just mentioned. Uh, Lou Trevino back to the Yankees. Scott Alexander to the A's. And Spencer Turnbull to the Phillies, so... Look, guys just want jobs, right? Come yep. on, spring training started. I need a job. Okay, it's a fun little it. trend <laughs> of, there was a fun little trend going for a few days of, you know, pitchers and catchers are starting to report and reporters are starting to report to spring training. They go, oh, Lou Trevino has a locker with the Yankees. That's interesting. Oh, Scott yeah. Alexander has a locker with the A's. Huh, wonder what that's about. Those, those are always the fun ones of like, guys just kind of show up to spring training and it's like, oh, I, I guess your team signed you. That That's nice. <laughs> Yeah, the one that really sent me off was Gio Urshela should not be getting paid 1.5. You know, he hasn't really been bad. He's been solid. He's not a superstar or anything, but he can play third. He can play short in a pinch, and he can hit for average, typically. Like, he's a good, solid player. Like, he's worth more than 1.5, as our model has shown. But but he just wanted a job. So, like, okay. And that's happened before. We've seen it in previous off-seasons at this point. Guys just want jobs. And there's quite a few more out there, I think, that we're going to see just take deals like this. I think in 2024, I'd rather have Gio Urshela than Whit Merrifield. And, right? you know, I, I guess there's different roster considerations there. If you really want a guy who can back up in the outfield, you would lean Merrifield. But given the price difference, I'd absolutely rather have Urshela at one and a half versus Merrifield at eight. And wait for it. IKF at two slash 15. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather have any of these guys, <laughs> yeah, any of these guys than IKF at that, but I, yeah, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah. Um, very last thing I wanted to mention here, uh, just because I couldn't find a better better segue for it earlier in in the episode, but one last article from a new uh, BTV contributor, uh, Cole. Oh goodness, Will Willacek, maybe. I think I think so. Okay, Cole Willichek. I, I should probably learn how to pronounce his name if he's going to be hanging around and contributing for a while. Uh, but he wrote a very good article on how the Dodgers have been using contract deferrals to their advantage and what it really means for their you know, future roster outlook and what they can do from like a surplus value perspective. So that will be linked as well. Um, it's, it's a very good uh, 
I, I like what we have going here at BTV, where we have really interesting articles to read every week. It, it's a yeah. it's a much improved Twice model, a week, in my opinion. Typically, yep. yeah, right. Yep. So we're keeping the the tap flowing here, so expect more to come too. Yep. Okay. Is there anything I missed? Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up today? No, I think we're good. It's good to have some spring training baseball. I think we're going to see some more guys sign for less than they're worth, unfortunately, because we're just there at this time of the year. Um, but, you know, it's on TV, guys. Enjoy it. Absolutely. Enjoy it, and just don't look uh, too closely at the pants. That's all I'll say on that. <laughs> okay. All you right. Had to you had to get that. <laughs> <laughs> had to. Couldn't help myself. <laughs> all right. All right, that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy spring training. Thanks, John.